open up our Bibles to John chapter 4, and let's join him. And as we continue now through the rest of the Gospel of John, over however many weeks the Lord has for us in this Gospel, however many weeks the Lord allows for us on this planet, as we go through it, keep your eyes on Jesus. One of the things to continue to ask yourself as we walk through is, what am I seeing? What is he doing? What's he thinking? How's he acting? Who's he praying for now? What's he up to? Well, let's find out. John chapter 4, verse 1, Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were, he left Judea and went away again into Galilee. One little thing there on verse 1 I think is interesting, the way it's written. When the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John. Well, the Lord is Jesus. So when he heard that, they heard that he was doing more baptizing. But note that throughout, especially the New Testament scriptures, anytime you see the Lord, the New Testament authors, mostly apostles, are talking about Jesus. I mean, this was what they called him. This is how they referred to him. Those who knew him best and loved him most referred to him as the Lord. So verse 3, he left Judea, went away again into Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. And from the first cleansing of the temple in Jerusalem to the baptizing in Judea, and now heading into Samaria, note that we see a pattern. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria. And I really wonder if this was intentional on John's part, on the Holy Spirit's part, that after his resurrection, Jesus says, Acts chapter 1, verse 8, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest parts of the earth. Point is, we follow Jesus in everything. He doesn't ask us to do anything that he himself hasn't already done. And here in his ministry from John, we learn, we discover, prior to the start of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John showing his public ministry, we see Jesus has already been in, Ju in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria. That's the pattern. So we follow him. We learn to trust him. We gotta trust him if we're gonna follow him, right? To follow him, you gotta trust him. To trust him you got to know him. And to know him is to love him. Verse 5. So he came to a city of Samaria named Sukkar, near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there. It's high noon now in Samaria. Or in Hebrew, uh, Shomron. Samaria is Shomron in the Hebrew. It means watch mountain. Watch Mountain, because Samaria contains much of the mountains of Israel, large hills to our Washingtonian sensibility, but they call them mountains, and these were strategic, strategic hills and valleys for, for the nation of Israel. So Watch Mountain is what Samaria, or Shomron, means. And among these hills, as we talked about already on Sunday, is Mount Gerizim. Mount Gerizim towers above Sukkar. I know we look at this and it says Sikhar, but it should be a U if we're really following the Greek. Sukhar. In Hebrew, Sukhar, I'm just going to try and lose you as fast as I can this evening. In Hebrew, Sukhar is Shechem. Shechem. 
Now, I'm going to come back and give you a definition for sukkar in the Greek in a minute. But in the Hebrew, it's shechem. Shechem means shoulder. It can also mean slope or portion. And we see the word in Genesis 48, verse 22, where Jacob says, I give you, speaking to Joseph, I give you one portion, one shechem, more than your brothers, which I took from the hand of the Amorite with my sword and my bow. I give you shechem. And so Joseph's tomb is actually there in Shechem. It's still there. To this day, it has, especially since 1995, been attacked and torched a number of times by angry Palestinian mobs. Why? Well, because in 1995, Israel pulled out of Shechem, Nablus, and gave full authority to the Palestinian Authority And there have been numerous riots there, and they have tried to get in and destroy Joseph's tomb. The tomb is still there. It's just got some burn marks on it now. And I just mentioned that to say to you, watch out for those who attempt to deny or erase history. History is what it is. By the way, along with Joseph's tomb is Jacob's well there at Shechem. Jacob's well, still there today. 4,000-year-old well that still gives water. To this day, it's, it's right now inside of a Greek Orthodox monastery, but they can still draw water out of this well. It, it's amazing. So Jacob's well was there, and so Jesus, being wearied from his journey, was sitting thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. Would you note, and I'm going to give you several things to jot down, and they all start with W tonight, so there's your special letter. Jesus was weary. What a picture. We see Jesus in a lot of ways, and we think of Jesus in a lot of ways. Can you imagine Jesus sitting down on the ground, feet out by the well, just going, just spent, just exhausted. The word for weary, that's what it means. It's kopiao, and it means exhausted. Jesus Christ creator of all things, is exhausted there in his own creation. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. F.F. Bruce says the evangelist John emphasizes those traits which attest to our Lord's genuine humanity. While John is focused on saying Jesus is God, and we'll see this more and more, it, it rises like a crescendo throughout the gospel, yet at the same time, John lets us know very clearly Jesus got weary. Jesus has physical traits. And so Bruce says this is no inaccessible visitant from another realm untouched by our ordinary infirmities. No, the word became flesh, just like you, just like me. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. So when we talk about knowing Jesus, we should know how well he knows our flesh and blood. He doesn't just know it, he doesn't just commiserate, he understands He got tired too. I encourage you, the next time you've had a long, worrying day, read John chapter four, verse six, and you can go, Jesus gets me. I'm weary. Jesus was weary as he sat there that day by the well. Verse seven. And there came a woman of Samaria to draw water, and Jesus said to her, give me a drink. Now, don't misread that. I was sharing with staff today that sometimes you can read scripture like you read a text. 
And, and, and text messages and emails are dangerous because you get no heart, no voice inflection, no emotion. You have no idea if the person's being funny or if they're being harsh, you know? <laughs> Autumn Marie was telling me about a friend of hers who said her, her mother misunderstood what LOL meant. And, and she had sent her mom a text saying, I've had a really lousy day. And so her mom sent her back, LOL, thinking it meant love you lots. L-O-L, love you lots. Anyway, just didn't get it. But she gets this, I had a terrible day today. Laugh out loud, what? <laughs> so anyway, text can be problematic. And scripture can too if we read it flat. You're gonna see why again later on in the study tonight. If you read it flat, it's like, man, that's harsh or that's cold or that's unemotional. It's not. You need to look at the words and see what's happening. Jesus said to her, give me a drink for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. He says, give me a drink, but he doesn't say, give me a drink. In fact, in the Greek, it would read more clearly, permit me a drink. Permit me a drink. Jesus is not being demanding. It's actually a very polite way to ask for a drink. And it would be standard protocol at a well. If you didn't have anything to draw with and someone else did, permit me a drink. Could I, may I have a drink? So he's being kind-hearted and he's reaching out to her and he's breaking the ice so that he can offer her a better drink. By the way, remember the very first sign at Cana of Galilee? Water to wine, right? That would have been a good sign to perform right here and now at this well. Sukhar would have been a good option because sukhar in the Greek means drunken. Drunken. It comes from the Hebrew word shekhar, which means strong drink. Well, Jesus is about to offer this woman the strongest, sweetest, most sober, and yet most joyful drink of eternal life. But, second thing to note, Jesus is weary, or is weary, the woman is weary. He's weary, she's weary. Verse nine, therefore the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink since I am a Samaritan woman, which is two strikes against her? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans, and it's even said by the old rabbis that Jews shouldn't have any dealings with women. Of course, I don't know how then we would continue to populate the earth, but that's another question for another time. Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. She, she's surprised. She's kind of off-put herself, and she's now putting him off. John's parenthetical statement about Jews and Samaritans means they wouldn't even drink from the same cup, much less the same well. So for Jesus to ask her for a drink was highly unusual, very irregular. And here is Jesus after his encounter with a respected Jewish scholar in Jerusalem who, by the way, sought out Jesus. Now he seeks out intentionally this marginalized Samaritan woman. Permit me a drink? And in so doing, he's reaching out to her. In Jerusalem, Nicodemus was searching. Here at Sukkar, the woman, she's wandering. One was looking for truth, the other one is lost. One came to Jesus in Jerusalem, the other just came to draw some water at high noon, and a lot has been made of this, but it probably was not a good time to draw. And it probably wasn't a busy time to draw, so it's likely she was going at noon because no one else would be there. And more of that you see in her life as she talks with Jesus. But what's great is, from Nicodemus to this woman, Jesus meets both of them 
right where they are. Nick is a scholar. Nick has religious questions. Nick is, is on the search. This woman is just lost in a messed up life. And Jesus goes to both of them, meets them where they are. By the way, another woman at another well referred to God as Elroy, God who sees. Genesis 16, remember the other woman's name? Hagar, yeah, Hagar. She was at the well, very interesting. And, and, and I would encourage you, I'm not gonna do it tonight, but do a little parallel study. Genesis 16, John chapter four, look at the two together because these two women have a lot in common. Verse 10, Jesus answered and said to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that says to you, give me a drink or permit me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. There's got to be a twinkle in Jesus' eye at this point because he knows where he's going and he knows why he's there and he knows what this appointment is about and he gently begins turning her now to her true need. He starts by saying, permit me a drink, but now he's saying, I've got something for you and he calls it living water. Jesus is weary, the woman is wary, but number three, Jesus is winsome. It's not a word that we use enough. I'm gonna use it on Jake later in the week. You're in a winsome mood. Jesus is winsome. I almost entitled this teaching, The Winsome Jesus, because he is, this, it speaks so well of his character and personality, more than one time as we'll see in this gospel, there's something heartwarming about the way Jesus comes to people, speaks to people, deals with people. He's just winsome. There is a twinkle in the eye what would she have heard, by the way, when he said he would have given you living water? Anyone know what a, what a someone in that, in that culture, whether it's Aramaic or Hebrew, what they would have heard when he said living water, what they would have thought he meant? So we need to strip away our religion. We hear living water and we go, oh, Holy Spirit. Yeah, that's not what she would have thought. She would have thought a stream or a river because the phrase living water, zao udor, means rushing, flowing water. That's a Hebrew euphemism for a river. Is there any living water around here? I mean, there's a well. You know, there are is there a, a bubbling spring or is there a river? The Jordan would be called living water because it's a rushing, flowing river. Well, she said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? You're not greater than our father Jacob, are you, who gave us the well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle? And as I said Sunday, this woman quickly becomes evasive. And especially every time Jesus starts to get a little close to her heart, she becomes evasive. She starts to dodge. And so right here, she first fires off, a, I think, a sarcastic rhetorical question. Sir, you have nothing to draw with. You come all up in here empty-handed promising me a river? Come on. And then secondly, she raises a not-so-subtle cultural challenge to this Jew, you're not greater than our father Jacob, are you? Dispute between Samaritans and Jews. Who's really? Who are the children of Jacob, really? Well, 10 of them were northern Israel. Ten of the children of Jacob were, were part of then who would ultimately be the Samaritans. You just had two. We had the ten. We come from Israel. 
our father Jacob gave us this well. You're not greater than him, are you? She's really thrown down here in, in a religious way. She is well-versed, you could say, in Samaritan apologetics. Trying to set Jesus now back on his heels, but the winsome Jesus is not there to debate religion. He's not there to compete with her. He's there to lead her and to lead her away from the work of the well, right, Adam? The hard work of the well. He wants to lead her away from that to the living water that is no work at all. From the hauling and the pulling and the drawing to the living water, the river of life. Verse 13, Jesus answered and said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. Note, he doesn't even address Jacob. He's not offended. How dare you? I'm a Jew from Judah of the line of Jacob. I'm from the ruling class. You Samaritan woman. <laughs> he doesn't address that at all. He just goes right on. Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again, he says. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. The water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, sir, give me this water so I will not be thirsty nor come all the way here to draw. And for a moment, do you see what happened? He's, he's got her. And she's gonna back away again. But he catches her off guard. She gives in. She breaks from her evasion. And her heart cries out, give me that water. I want that water. I think, and I can only read into it, that her spirit was, was touched. A well of water springing up to eternal life. Give me that, she says. Jesus, number four, is water. Jesus is water for a thirsty spirit. He says exactly what she needs to hear to soften the heart, and her heart seems to soften just for a moment. Isaiah chapter 12, verse two says, Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation, my Yeshua in the Hebrew. Therefore, you will joyously draw water from the springs of Yeshua, from the springs of salvation. Jesus makes the leap quickly from fresh water to eternal life without skipping a stone. <laughs> he gets right there, goes right to it, and he offers her, note this, this is amazing, he offers her eternal life before dealing with her past life. And you see in Jesus, he offers eternal life first. We'll deal with the mess. We'll talk about the mess. We'll sanctify that in your life, which is, you know, in the tank. But let's talk salvation first. Let's talk eternal life first. That, this, is, this is the message of the gospel. Grace first, and then sanctification. Healing first, and then we'll work on the rough spots. And he offers her this eternal life, this water for a thirsty spirit before he deals with her parched past. God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It's so easy to flip that around and get it backwards, but that's the deal. That's the offer. Jesus says grace first. The promise of heaven first. Eternal life is yours first. And then we'll go back and sanctify the life. Ephesians chapter two, verse one. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, Paul said. 
But verse four, God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And again, we're not even to sanctification yet. We're not even to cleaning up. Salvation first. Grace first. Grace is poured out. Not by, again, hoisting heavy buckets to slake the thirst that's gonna come again and again and again. No wonder John says he had the voice that sounds like many waters. Revelation 1.15. Now, Sunday, I told you that Samaritans had their own Messiah figure, the Taheb or Tahib. The Tahib. And they actually borrowed a phrase that they said described the Tahib from Numbers chapter 24, verse 7. That phrase, and note this, Jesus would know this. Numbers is his book, right? It's his word. Jesus would know this as he's offering her living water, uh, eternal life, and comparing it to living water. What did the Tahib, what did they believe the Tahib was going to do? Numbers 24, 7, water will flow from his buckets and his seed by many waters. So he's tapping into her, this is amazing, her a little bit twisted, confused belief system. And he's resetting it. It's not the Tahib, it's me. I offer the living water. I offer eternal life, not this other guy. And so she hears his words and her heart immediately jumps. Sir, give me this water, she says. By the way, come next fall, In Jerusalem, that is in the gospel, Jesus will make a similar statement that's gonna make many Jewish hearts jump. John 7, 37, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. Verse 16, and he said to her, go call your husband and come here. Now, Jesus, couldn't you leave well enough alone? Well enough. Said the well. He's doing so well. He, he, you know, he's, he's, he's got her actually right where he wants her, and she's, her heart cries out, and all he has to do is just keep rolling with this, Jesus. Stay with the living water. Stay in that place. She's, she's following in, and all of a sudden, he has to break with that and go, go call your husband. Oh, Lord. Why would he say that? Why now? Why in this place? Because God is not interested in superficiality. And he's not looking for religious filters. He's looking for who we are. And he wants us to come to him as we are. Here's salvation. Come as you are. Openly, honestly, confessing, this is my mess. Salvation's already been offered now. When Jesus says, go call your husband, and number five in your notes, Jesus is working his way into the well of her heart. He's working his way into the well of her heart. He's moving about her heart, you can say. Our hearts, the problem with sin in our lives, think of your heart as a well. The heart is a well. It's a a good poetic description. And think of your heart as a well and sin and ignorance and the rationalization of sin is like dirt being piled in and filling up the well so it can no longer give water. Just burying it all there. So it's just muck and mire and it's useless for the refreshment that we so desire. Jesus offers her eternal life, offers her the living water and then begins to reach in to clean out the well of her heart. To cleanse what's there. And he does this by speaking directly to her most 
intimate, deepest desire, a relationship. Go call your husband. A relationship. The the one relationship that I, I think I can honestly, rightly say this woman wanted more than any other because she had tried six times. And Jesus goes right to that place. Into her well, which was buried and had run dry. But she's still wary. Go call your husband and come here. And the woman answered and said, I I have no husband. She's withholding information. That's number six. This wary individual is withholding information. And Jesus brings this up because, listen, salvation needs us to come to the truth. As we'll see in just a moment, how do we worship in spirit and in truth? It's got to be true. It's got to be real. It's got to be authentic and genuine. And so he begins to head down the road of truth, but it's the truth with tenderness. The tender truth is necessary to opening up the well of the heart so living water can begin to flow. And so he has to deal with this, but he does it in a tender way. Go call your husband. And he allows her the opportunity to say, I don't have a husband. And in the second part of the verse, he says to her, you have correctly said I have no husband. You've had five husbands. And the one with whom you, one whom you now have is not your husband. This you have said truly. And in this moment, as her jaw is dropping, Jesus doesn't judge her. Jesus doesn't condemn her. He doesn't slam her, but... Brothers and sisters in the church, listen to me. He doesn't avoid the truth. It's tender because he offers her the opportunity to confess. But he doesn't avoid it. You're you're right. You're right. You have no husband. You could almost hear him saying, and that's got to be really hard for you. You're right. This is a mess. You've spoken honestly and truly. He deals with the truth. Ephesians 4, 14, as a result, we are no longer to be children, tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming, but speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. And this is something that some aspects of our church fellowship Uh, worldwide do well. Some churches speak the truth well with tenderness, just wanting to be honest and say, look, salvation, grace first, but let's deal with the reality. God loves you too much to just let that stuff go. Other churches do not deal well with it. They are harsh and hold up mean-spirited signs and they're nasty about it. They're harsh with the truth. Still the truth. They're just harsh with it. That's no good. Other churches avoid the truth. Let's just be tolerant of all sin lifestyles and accept everything because that's love. That's not love. That's not love. It denies the truth, and love would not deny the truth. Jesus is tender with the truth. He brings the truth. He deals with it to heal of it. James chapter 2, verse 15 tells us, if a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Let me ask you, how much more if we avoid, tolerate, or worse, accept sin lifestyles rather than speak the truth in love? What are we really doing for someone if we send them on their merry way saying, oh, you're fine, we're fine, and we're gonna fly the rainbow flag in front of our church just to tell you we love you? 
What have we just done? We've sent them on their merry way to hell. That, that is not love. That is not speaking the truth. Jesus never leaves a person wallowing in the muck and the mire of their sin. Listen to this. Hebrews chapter four. You can turn there if you'd like to, but turn quickly because I'm not going to be there long. Hebrews chapter four, verse 13. Listen to how clear the Bible is about how God deals with our stuff. Hebrews 4, 13. The Hebrew pastor says, there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Now, that's very clear. There's nothing hidden with God. All things are open. The word open is gumnos. It means naked. Everything is naked. You stand naked before God. There is no hiding anything. And then it says, and laid bare, and that word is trachalizo. Think of trachea. It's a hunter's term that refers to tearing the trachea open right down the belly to flay the animal open and gut the insides out. And the Hebrew pastor uses that word and naked. Everything's naked and everything is just laid open before him with whom we have to do. No one, is, no one gets off the hook. Everyone has to deal with God. Everyone hiding nothing has to stand before him as we are. Wouldn't you rather stand before him covered in the blood of Jesus? Covered in salvation, covered by grace and mercy. But what's interesting about that little verse, and it's, it's, it's pretty heavy duty. Gotta deal with your stuff before the Lord. Now or then, confess it now, or you're gonna confess it then. But listen to the context. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. He strips away, he opens us up, not to shame us, but to sanctify us. And not to humiliate us, but to heal us. And then he says, come to my throne. See, he gets you. He understands me. But the human tendency is to stay closed, to try and hide. Back to the woman, verse 19. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Change the subject, change the subject. Our fathers worshiped in this mountain, and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. And you know what's remarkable again about Jesus is rather than risking damaging her heart by pushing the issue of the husbands and the man who's not her husband, you know, five failed marriages and shacking up, rather than stay there and just push that, here's the tender Jesus. You want to talk about worship? Let's talk about worship. And he goes with her on this. I would say that Jesus is welcoming, number seven. He is welcoming. The first thing he does here is he welcomes the question of worship. Why do you think he did that? Now, we talked about worship on Sunday. We spent our time there really focusing on that issue of this, of this discussion. But why does Jesus allow her to shift the topic so quickly? Our fathers worship in this mountain, and you say in Jerusalem is a place where men ought to worship, and Jesus immediately switches topics and goes to worship. Why? I'll tell you what I think. 
I think Jesus knows that worship is just another route to the heart. And if this route to her heart to deal with her husbands and, and the mess that she's gotten herself into, if that one's still a little closed, okay, let's go the route of worship because it's gonna open up her heart just as much. Worship does that. It opens the heart. Jesus says, woman, ma'am, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit. And those who worship and must worship in spirit and in truth. So beautiful. And, and again, the intricacies of this, of this teaching that we looked at on Sunday. But my friends, authentic worship both calls on and develops a humble heart. Someone who's willing just to be honest and open before the Lord to worship in spirit and truth. See, Sunday we talked about how spirit and truth speak of the Lord. God is spirit. And those who worship must worship in spirit because he is spirit and in truth. Well, Jesus is the truth. But it also says something about how we approach God in our worship. That we come to him spiritually, born again. We come to him spiritually, which with God means intimately. And we come to him in truth, honestly, humbly. We come before him because our worship is for him and it is to him and it is about him and it doesn't rely on my feelings or my conditions or my egocentric desires if I come in here a complete wreck on a Sunday morning you know what I need more than anything else I need to worship God because it will turn my heart it will heal my heart it will soften my heart it will bring hope back into my life we worship him in spirit because he's spirit it, it means, again, our worship is never tied to how we feel. Oh, I'm, I'm just not up for it. See, that's the lie of the enemy. If it's, and I, I'm so glad to see you all here tonight. If it's a Wednesday night and you have the opportunity to come to worship, but you've had a long, hard, difficult day, and what you hear is, I'm just not up for it. That's when you need it most because it's not about how you're feeling or how much energy you have or whether or not you're up for it. It is about him and for him. And Paul says, 2 Corinthians 3, 17, the Lord is the spirit. And guess what? Where the spirit of the Lord is, is liberty. Want to get free from the stress of the day? Come on. Where the spirit is, is liberty. But as I said, to worship in spirit, you must be born of the spirit, born again. Just as worshiping in truth means we must trust Jesus because he is the truth and we come to him in truth authentically and honestly just as we are. Lord, I've had a lousy today, day today and I feel pretty crummy. Praise the Lord. And my heart begins to change. That's, that's what we talked about Sunday, the, the blessings of worship, the serendipity. It's not the reason. The reason for worship is because he needs to be worshiped because we owe him our worship. He is the reason and purpose for worship. But the blessing of worship is what it then begins to do to the well of our hearts. Even as this conversation is affecting this Samaritan woman, it is changing her. It's impacting her life. 
Psalm 51, verse 6, we come to Jesus who is the truth, and I love what David said. In his confessional psalm over his horrific sin, he says, behold, you desire truth in the innermost being, and in the hidden part, you will make me know wisdom. Beautiful. Verse 25, the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. One last attempt to put him off. And now Jesus not only welcomed her question of worship, but Jesus welcomes her right into his own loving arms. Verse 26, Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. And you might want to write this in the margin of your Bibles, the literal translation, what he just said to her right then and right there. She says, I know Messiah is coming and I'll listen to him. And he turns around and says to her, I am who speaks to you. I am who speaks to you. Ego eimi is the phrase in the Greek. It is the Greek parallel to Yahweh. I am. I am. She's had five husbands. She is living with a dude. And she finally comes face to face with Mr. Wright. He's her need. He's the seventh man, as I called him on Sunday. The seventh man. The one relationship that she most desperately needs. The one that can set her heart right. So again, don't go for the benefits of a relationship with God without the commitment. Come to Jesus, worship him, trust in him because he deserves it. And the blessing of living water will, will flow. Revelation 21, 6, Jesus said, I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. Verse 27. At this point, his disciples came <laughs> and they were amazed that he had been speaking with a woman, yet no one said, what do you seek or why do you speak with her? They're dumbfounded. How many times were his disciples dumbfounded by the things that he did? This, this is one of the things that just cracks me up. If I could watch the video recordings of Jesus with the disciples, how many times they're standing there going, you ask him, I'm not gonna ask him. They knew enough about Jesus at this point to know that he was intentional, so he must have something going on here, but this just blew their minds that he's talking to this woman. So verse 28, the woman left her water pot and went into the city and said to, said to the men, come see a man who told me all the things that I have done. Now, that would include, perhaps in their thinking, what she had done with some of those men. Yeah. This is not the Christ, is he? And they went out of the city and were coming to him. Yeah, I bet they were. What'd he tell you? What, about, huh? And so off they go. I really wonder if any ex-husbands or former boyfriends were in that crowd. <laughs> he told me all the things I've done, she says. Now, many sermons have been preached about this passage, all over this passage, actually, but specifically about verse 28, the woman left her water pot. You could entitle the sermons, The Water Pot That She Forgot. 
You know, she left it behind. And, and John shares this little detail, and, and many pastors, and I'm one of them, have grabbed hold of that and said, look, look at what this signifies. She's leaving her past behind. She met Jesus and all the weight of the water pot that she had to draw every day and lug back home. She's there, and she sets it down, and off she goes. She's set free. The past is done. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. So the water pot, it signifies her leaving behind the past. Let me ask you a question. You ever sneak back to the well to pick up that old water pot again? Thinking, well, I can, I can, I'm not gonna bother Jesus with this one. I'm gonna go grab that and lug that heavy thing home just one more time. Leave it behind. Leave the water pot behind. Don't go back for it. Don't try to retrieve something from the past. It's not gonna be any better the second, third, fourth, fifth, or sixth time around. Just leave it. Besides, if you do go back to get it, it's stagnant water. Probably got like parasites and leeches all up in it. The old tap, it will always leave you thirsty. We have living water. You don't need the old water pot. So just let it go. Living water. Living water like the Gihon Spring. This is a really cool place in Jerusalem that you can actually go down and see. It was the first time I saw it, and really every time, every time since, I love seeing where the Gihon Spring bubbles right up out of the rock and starts to flow. And it is still flowing today. It was flowing 3,000 years ago when David conquered Jerusalem and the city. It was flowing through Hezekiah's tunnel. It still bubbles up and flows today. So there's this, this picture of living water even right there in Jerusalem Water that flows nonstop. But the living water of Jesus is forever. It's not 3,000 years old or 4,000 years old or 6,000 years old. It is eternal. So we can leave the water pot behind because we don't need it. The water is flowing. It's constant. His spirit keeps our faith fresh and keeps us looking forward to the life which is to come. Let me talk about that just for a moment. We need to hold on to that hope. I had a difficult conversation with someone last night and it was so hopeless. And I hate that. When we're hopeless, you know what that means? It means we look at our past and there's no good there and we look to the future and there's no good there and we look at right where we are and there's no good there. It just, it kills everything, hopelessness. Jesus is our living hope. Our living hope is the resurrection of Jesus Christ, 1 Peter chapter 1 tells us. We have a hope like nobody has hope. If you've given your life to Jesus, if you've received that free, fresh, living water offer of grace that comes first, and you're allowing him to flood into your life and begin to wash out the old stuff, we have this amazing hope. This eternal living water flowing like a nonstop eternal river that keeps us going forward and not back. Forward in the river. We're not going upstream, we're going downstream. Of course, with Jesus, downstream is up. And it's eternal and it's forever. And that's why Paul says, 2 Timothy 4, 8, in the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. And no matter what's going on in your life, you've got the kingdom coming. 
that will turn around anybody's difficulty if we will trust him, if we'll believe in him. And I truly do. This is, this is something I'm so thankful for. It took me years to come to this understanding that I've spoken over and over here that our lives are a blip compared to the kingdom. And I'm not even talking about eternity. I'm just talking about the millennial kingdom promised in the book of Revelation and multiple other places in scripture. The kingdom promised to Israel that God must fulfill that promise if he's to keep his word. This thousand year reign of Jesus from Jerusalem as ruler over the whole earth, over a restored, rejuvenated, beautiful planet. Until then, we go on to the rest that he will deal with and the new Jerusalem, new heaven, new earth. But but just the kingdom alone, we have a promise of a thousand years of peace on this planet. Under the rule and reign of Jesus, absolute righteousness, that alone fills me, floods me with hope. So that no matter what happens to my physical body, no matter what's going on in my worldly challenges and earthly relationships that can sometimes be difficult, no matter what's back there in my past that the devil tries to bring up and remind me, (laughs) I got hope. I'm kingdom bound. And that's not just a song and it's not just some idea that someone dredged up. This is Jesus talking. And this is Paul. That's why Paul literally on death row was able to say, this is laid up for me in the future. I'm going to be there. I've told you all before, we're going to be in this kingdom. We're going to be serving and ruling and reigning with Jesus in this world. You know, I just want one of the Hawaiian islands and I'm good to go. But we have this hope. We have this hope. But wait, listen. What if the woman didn't actually leave the water pot behind as a parable of new life? What if the reality was she was just so preoccupied with Jesus, she forgot all about it? As we make so much out of it, she left the water pot, and off she went to her new life. Maybe she, she's just, maybe she just spaced it all together. And I tell you, that is how to live as a Christian. Just be preoccupied with Jesus and you're good. We'll be all right. It's easy to leave the water pot behind when our eyes are fixed on Jesus. Hebrews chapter 12, verse two, the author and finisher of our faith. Just keep your eyes on Jesus. Go ahead, be preoccupied with him. I love it. You know, you're sitting at work and someone says, hey, what's on your mind? (laughs) Jesus, that would freak some people out. What are you talking about? Oh, I'm just preoccupied here, just thinking about him. You know, he was up on a, on a mountain looking down at his apostles and they were straining at the oars and he's praying for him. You know, I feel like he's doing that for me right now. People would just think you were nuts in a glorious way. We might even see some people saved if we were a little more preoccupied with Jesus. Well, now in the story, number nine, I think it is in your notes, the woman is, oh, I guess it's number eight. Doesn't matter. The woman's a witness. She has now become a witness. Sometimes the most unlikely people are the most wonderful witnesses for Jesus Christ. And it's usually those who are most real with Jesus and with themselves. Those who are able to be honest with him him, and they have nothing to hide. And here she goes back into the city. This woman who came out by herself at noon when no one else would be there runs into the center of town 
and starts proclaiming Jesus. Come see a man, verse 29, who told me all the things that I've done. This is not the Christ, is it? As she speaks, as she evangelizes the town of Sukkar. Verse 31, after they are coming out of the city to him, says, meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples were saying to one another, no one brought him anything to eat, did he? And Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Note this, it's the same Jesus who very shortly before was so weary, he couldn't even go into town to help him buy falafels and fries. He's just laying by the well, sitting by the well, because he is exhausted until the woman comes up. And suddenly now Jesus is strangely invigorated. Jesus, next one in your notes, so we'll call it number nine, is well-fed. He's well-fed. See, the word does that. This is something else about our gathering, you know, and, and this is, please, I hope you don't get me wrong. Sunday and tonight, I'm not trying to make a pitch for church attendance. That is never the issue. There is a truth here. There is a reality here that whether we're worshiping with two or three gathered together in his name, or we're in the word, in a small group, or, or wherever. Worship in the word. See, worship will heal and strengthen your heart. The word will feed you. And Jesus suddenly, though he hadn't had a bite to eat, is well-fed Jesus himself. Because remember, the word became flesh, and now the word that became flesh is feeding on the word. He's well-fed. In fact, the word doesn't just feed you when you are feeding on it. The word feeds you when you are doing it. So the word made flesh is now doing what the word calls us to do and it satisfies and it feeds him. What are you talking about, Rick? Jeremiah 15, 16. Your words were found and I ate them and your words became for me a joy and the delight of my heart. Or Acts chapter four, verse 20, Peter and John saying, we cannot stop talking about what we've seen and heard. Or James 1, prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. Oh, I go and I listen. Great, what are you doing with it? See, Jesus is speaking the word of truth to this woman. And after their brief conversation here in John chapter four, Jesus is full. Lord, eat something. I got food you don't even know about. Jesus is pumped up. Jesus is encouraged because the word lived out is the healthiest, most satisfying diet there is anywhere. Nothing satisfied Jesus more. And I know that for a fact because he prayed in John 17, verse three, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work which you gave me to do. It was satisfying to Jesus to be the word and to bring the word of God. Well, verse 35, he continues, he says, do you not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? That was actually a little kind of uh, rhyming phrase that, that they would speak, which is why I said it that way. There are yet four months and then comes the harvest. Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes. Look on the fields that they are white for the harvest. The fields are white, that's the next point. 
So number 10 or 11, depending on what what you've written down. The fields are white. The word in the Greek is leukos, and it literally translates bright white. Hang on a second, Lord. Aren't fields ready for harvest more of a golden brown? Why is he calling them white? As Jesus spoke here, here come the Samaritans over the hill. And as they come toward the well, they are dressed in their Samaritan swag, which is what? The traditional Samaritan dress of the day, white robes and white turbans. He looks over and here they come, all out of the city, looking like a bunch of stalks of wheat. The fields are white for the harvest. Jesus, as he always does, is drawing off of what he sees. Here they come. The fields are white. But it is also very pertinent to, I think, where we are sitting right now today because harvestable grain is golden brown at first, but if it's left on the stalk until the end of the summer, it begins to turn white. And so Jesus says, Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields. They are white for the harvest. The time is now. Come on, boys. The fields are white. Verse 36, already he who weeps is is receiving wages and gathering fruit for life eternal. Who is he talking about? He's talking about himself, I believe, right there. Already he who reaps. Jesus is reaping from the harvest. He hadn't even died on the cross yet. This thing isn't even fully underway, but he's there and the ball is rolling. And he's already looking at these people as people he's about to save. I mean, three years and the cross will do it. And they're coming, believing in him, or they will. But the fields, the harvest, and so he's the reaper here, receiving wages, gathering fruit for life eternal. And he says, so that he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this case, the saying is true. One sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. As Paul put it, 1 Corinthians 3 verse 6, I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. So then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but God who causes the growth. Now he who plants And he who waters are one, but each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers, and you are God's field, God's building. And this is what we are caught up in. This is part of what excites me about the gospel and about being in the church today. At this point, at the end of the age, at the end of summer, when the fields are as wide as they're going to be, it is time to finish up the job, time to finish the harvest. And what gets me jazzed about this is that we are standing on the shoulders of giants. Do you remember, realize that, that, that I am right now continuing the work of Charles Spurgeon? I, I'm, I'm, in the, I'm in the flow of, of a D.L. Moody. I'm one of those guys. So are you. That as we work the fields of the harvest at this time, we are standing on the shoulders of of giants. We team up at summer's end with the prophets and the apostles and the saints who have gone before this great cloud of witnesses, and we get to be part of that? God isn't sending the church into the world because the church is the answer for the harvest. Guess what? The harvest isn't going to be done when we're called out of here. 
So why is he sending us? So that we can rejoice with the Lord of the harvest. So that we get to be part of it. We're on the team. I was watching Seinfeld the other night with, with Chris, and, and, and it was the one where Jerry is talking about how you know, sports, he said, we need to rethink how we do sports because you say, yeah, we won. No, you didn't. They won. You watched. <laughs> and that's, that would be the case if we all went to heaven and just kind of showed up. We're among the saved. Great. But God says, yeah, but you can rejoice with me. You can be part of this. You can have your hands on the wheat. The fields are white for the harvest. You get to rejoice in that. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 3 says you, speaking to Messiah, you shall multiply the nation, you shall increase their gladness, and they will be glad in your presence as with the gladness of the harvest. We get to do that. People are like, well, I don't know how to do evangelism. Forget about doing evangelism. Just go out and harvest. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Be preoccupied with Jesus. Forget the old water pot and go out and tell people about Jesus. How wonderful would it be to stand in heaven and look over and, there and, go, and, look over and say, I told her about Jesus. Lord, I told her about you. And he winks at you. Yeah, you did. Way to go. Among the billions of people saved, you got one. And there is more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner saved than over 99 righteous people. So let's go after the one and rejoice in the joy of the harvest, remembering that Jesus also said this, Matthew 9, 37, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest. Plead with the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest so we can both be a part of the harvesting team and we can be praying for more workers to join us in the harvest. Verse 39. From that city, many of the Samaritans believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified, he told me all the things that I have done. So when the Samaritans came to Jesus, they were asking him to stay with them and remarkably, note this, remarkably, he stayed there two days. A Jew in a city of Samaritans. And he stayed with them. And then it says in verse 41, many more believed because of the massive number of miracles that he did there. Oh, I'm sorry, that's not what it says. Many more believed because of his word. And they were saying to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and know that this one is indeed the Savior of the world. Jesus is the word to Sukkar. He is the word. That's your next point. Number 11, I think. See, see the people of the city, they came out to him because of her words, but they asked him to stay because of his words. And that word, by the way, stay, it's that favorite word of John Minyo. It means abide. There in, in, in verse uh, 40, they asked him to abide with them, and he abided there two days. He, he, he stayed with them. John 15, 4, Jesus says, abide in me, and I in you. If you abide in me, my words abide in you. Ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. How do I abide in Jesus? Ask him to stay. Just ask him to stay, and you stay with him. You abide as he abides. Preoccupied with him, eyes fixed on Jesus. And 
you will believe more because of his word. Your faith will increase because of his word. And these Samaritans, don't miss this, after hearing Jesus, they realize that he is not just a savior of Samaritans. And he is not even just the savior of Israel. He is, as they put it there in verse 42, the savior of the world. We recognize, we see, he's the savior of the world. They've listened to him now, two days, of a little two-day retreat with Jesus. Wouldn't you love to do that? And they're listening to him and they're hearing him and, oh, Oh, he is the savior of the world. First Timothy chapter four, verse 10, Paul writes, it is for this we labor and strive, fellow harvesters, because we have fixed our hope on the living God who is the savior of all men, especially of believers, which I find a really interesting statement. Wait a minute. Paul, he's the savior of all men, especially of believers? So, are you saying he's the savior of non-believers? Yeah, that's exactly what Paul is saying. In that, he came to save all people. Now, whether they accept that salvation or not is up to them. See, it's not universalism, it's just invitationalism. <laughs> that the invitation is to the whole world, that he has died to save the whole world and would save the whole world if they'll have him, if they'll ask him to stay. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And that offer is to the world. It's to the world. So yes, God is the savior. Jesus is the savior of all and especially of believers because we've accepted that salvation. And it is up to those in the world to decide whether or not they want it. By the way, in the Gospels, now Paul used that phrase that he's the savior of all men. In the Gospels, this is a little surprising to me, Jesus is only called savior three times. In all four Gospels, in all of his presence and teaching and all that he does, he's only called savior three times. The first time, Luke chapter one, verse 47, where Mary says, my spirit has rejoiced in God, my Savior. Or Luke chapter two, verse 11, where the angel says, for today in the city of David, there has been born to you a Savior who is Christ the Lord, second use of the word Savior. And the third time we see the word Savior in the Gospels, third and last time, it's spoken by the Samaritans of Sukkar. He is the Savior of the world. That's wonderful. By the way, how, how long did Jesus stay there with these outsiders before getting back to his largely Jewish ministry? Two days. I've told you before, if a day is, is a thousand years to the Lord, well, he's been abiding with those who believe because of his word, with Gentiles, with outsiders, with foreigners. He's been abiding with us for the past two days, 2,000 years. Jesus has called these last couple thousand years, these last two days, if you will, he's called these the times of the Gentiles. And here we are. It is nearly time as he stays with them here in Sukkar, he stays with them two days. It is nearly time for the times of the Gentiles to be over, for him to renew his focus on Israel. 
when Jesus stayed with them two days, it was nearly time for the times of the Gentiles to begin. Now, tonight, it's almost done. The times of the Gentiles is almost through when Jesus is going to refocus on the Jewish people. His heart will be reset to them. Well, his heart has always been for them. But he's going to return to a focus on Israel. Hosea chapter 6, verse 2, he will revive us after two days. He'll raise us up on the third day that we may live before him. The third day, the millennial kingdom. The two days, the church age, the times of the Gentiles. The end of the harvest. It's all coming together, folks. Verse 43, after the two days, he went forth from there into Galilee. Verse 44, for Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans received him, having seen all the things that he did in Jerusalem at the feast, for they themselves also went to the feast. Now that's a little confusing. Listen one more time to those two verses together. It says, verse 44, that Jesus testified a prophet has no honor in his own country. So you'd expect the next, next verse to say he came into the Galilee and they didn't receive him. Because a prophet is not without honor except in his own country. And he's going back to his own area, his own region. So you would think it would say they didn't receive him. But it says when he came to Galilee, the Galileans received him. I'm a little confused, John. What are you trying to say? They received him, having seen all the things that he did in Jerusalem at the feast, for they themselves also went to the feast. Listen, in Sumerian Sukkar, uh, a mini revival broke out. This city was saved, which maybe not every last person in Sukkar, but a large, a large enough number of people in Sukkar were saved that, that the Bible says they were all saved. The city was saved. And, and now... Jesus is leaving Samaria and going back into the Galilee and back to his own area where he will immediately, upon coming to Nazareth, be treated to a scenic rush through the city right out to the edge of Mount Precipice because they reject him. In general, verse 45 says that many did receive him. And, and they did kind of, yeah, at first, as we'll see, until the teaching got too hard for them, until it was too close to home. They receive him at first. Why? Because of the miracles. And note that. They receive him because of the miracles. Jesus did not come looking for looky-loos. He came looking for true worshipers who worship in spirit and in truth. And it's interesting to me that in Sukkar, there is no record of a single miracle. How did the city get saved? They took Jesus at his word. They heard the word. They listened to Jesus teach. It, 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 he doesn't even do a miracle with the Samaritan woman. He just talks to her and reaches right into the well of her heart and fills her up with the idea of living water, and she gets saved. Why? Because faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Now, fellow harvesters, listen, I get it. Preaching in the PNW is tough. Giving the gospel to people here in the Northwest is not easy. There's, see, there's already this, this sense of the natural all around us in Washington and Oregon. This is the natural, you know, the experiential. And we all know because as soon as the sun comes out, everybody's out experiencing nature. Out of there, it's like this whole place just comes alive and then the sun starts to go dark in the fall and everybody hides in their hovels. 
and that's the Northwest. But spiritually speaking, man, this place is pagan. Not y'all. But this is a pagan region of the country. This is hard work. The explosive, expansive spread of the gospel doesn't seem as obvious in this place because it's so dark. Doesn't mean it can't happen. Doesn't mean it won't happen. But understand that with this tendency to this, I'll just call it a false sense of spirituality that's all around us in the Northwest, what do we do? How do we respond? We keep bringing the word. We keep speaking the word of truth. We just keep bringing it over and over and over to, yes, that same person who's tired of hearing it, bring it again. So that they say to you, you're so preoccupied with Jesus. Yes, I am. Boy, I'd love for you to be too, because then you could have the kind of hope that I have. You wouldn't be so thirsty. We are not here to hide in the woods. We are here to worship in spirit and truth with our very lives until he returns. Amen? Amen? Amen. Did you hear what I said? We are here to worship in spirit and truth with our very lives until he returns. Amen? Amen? That's the call on our lives. We go out into the harvest praising and worshiping Jesus as we go. Well, verse 46, and I'm gonna finish up here. Do the whole chapter. Verse 46, therefore he came again into Cana of Galilee where he had made the water wine. And there was a royal official whose son was sick at Capernaum. When he heard that Jesus had come out of Judea into Galilee, he went to him and was imploring him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. This royal official goes looking for Jesus. I can tell you a couple of things about this royal official. Number one, he's a Gentile. He's not a Jew. How do you know? Well, he's a royal official. His title is literally Basilikos. The royal, a Basilikos came looking for Jesus. What's a basilicos doing in Capernaum? Well, right there around the Galilee, not far from Capernaum, Capernaum to the north, is Tiberias, a city on the Sea of Galilee that Jews did not visit because it was Gentile territory, it was royalty territory, named after Tiberius Caesar, and it was kind of a home base, one of many home bases of Herod Antipas, the king. Basilicos, royal official, literally means king's worker or of the king. So this guy was an official of the king, probably an official, therefore, of King Antipas, Herod Antipas, who was one of three sons of Herod the Great. Herod the Great was the maniac architect who tried to have everybody killed, killed all the infants at the time of Jesus. He had three sons who he hadn't killed, killed his own wife. That's another story. Three sons, one of whom was Herod Antipas, who was in the Galilee region and this is a basilico, so he's working for Herod, Antipas. Serving in that court, a Gentile living in Capernaum on the Sea of Galilee. Now, now from Capernaum to Cana, do you remember we talked about this traveling distance before? From Capernaum to Cana in Galilee, it was about 13 and a half, almost 14 miles to travel. And it's not a hard journey. It's actually a beautiful path that could be taken to get from one place to the next. This Gentile official comes out of Capernaum where his son lay dying, hears that Jesus is in Cana and hotfoots it to Cana to ask Jesus for a miracle. Non-Jewish Gentile dude, verse 48. So Jesus said to him, 
unless you people see signs and wonders, you simply will not believe. Remember what I said about text messages? See, if you just read this at face value, it sounds like Jesus is being a little harsh. You want another miracle for crying out loud? This is not like the bread, you know, feeding of the 5,000 where he says a similar thing. You just want me to feed you again. Here this, this guy's coming and, and he is in dire straits. If, think about dads, it's your son. And he's on his deathbed at home and there is no hope and the doctors are telling you, he's just, you know, make your peace because he's gonna die. And you go rushing out there with your last possible hope. Maybe this, this miracle worker guy, this Jesus can do something. And you go rushing up to him, Jesus, come, you need to heal my son, he's dying. And Jesus says, you want another miracle? matter with you well Jesus didn't say it like that what is Jesus doing and you got to ask the question this is a shocking statement but Jesus is now drawing out of another well he says what he says because he needs to draw faith out of this man's heart this basilicos's heart verse 49 the royal official said to him sir come down before my child dies said to him, that word said is in the continuous tense. It's, it's the present active tense. What does that mean? Ongoing. He's not just saying, oh, sir, come down before my child dies. He is pleading, please come. Oh, please, my child's dying. You've got to come with me. Please come. He's saying it over and over. He is literally begging Jesus from the well of his heart, come save my son. He doesn't care about signs and wonders, doesn't even address signs and wonders. Doesn't care about faith among these Jews. He just wants his son. He just wants him healed, verse 50. So Jesus said to him, go. Your son lives. And the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and started off. Note that the Bible tells us so. He believed immediately. Hadn't seen his son, hadn't gotten word about his son, but in the moment Jesus said, your son lives cool. Thanks, Jesus. He believed him. Now, verse 51 says, as he was now going down, his slaves met him, saying that his son was living. So he inquired of them of the hour when he began to get better, and they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. So the father knew that it was at that hour in which Jesus said to him, your son lives, and he himself believed, and his whole household. This is again the second sign, or a second sign, that Jesus performed when he had come out of Judea into Galilee. Now check this out. This non-religious, probably pagan dude, believed the moment Jesus said, your son lives. We know because the Bible tells us that, but we also know for another reason. He believed Jesus so much that he doesn't even start for home until the next day. I mean, it's 13, 14 miles. If, if he takes it at a pace, he would have been home by evening. If my son lay dying, and I went to a miracle worker and I said, I need a miracle, can you heal him? And, and he said, go, he, he lives, it's good. I wouldn't stop off for macaroni and cheese, much less stay the night in Cana, but he stays. We know, because now it's the next day and he says, when did he get better? Yesterday. Oh, that's when Jesus told me, yesterday. Yesterday? Why is it now today? Why weren't you home last night? 
Because he believed. He really believed Jesus. Took him at his word. My son lives. I don't need to rush home. I don't know if there was a good movie playing there in Cana that night. I don't know what was going on. But he believed, he believed, he believed. It was a, again, four-hour journey just to rush home. And I would have rushed straight home unless, unless I believed Jesus. Apparently armed with nothing but faith, the official just said, good. Spent the night in Cana and headed home the next day. Why? The last thing to note in your notes, a noble faith does not worry. You could add a noble faith does not hurry because faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And his entire family, his whole household ends up believing in Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. Why does John give us this example? He gives seven signs throughout the Gospel of John. Seven signs and that's it. And this is number two. Why this one? Why does he put it in here? John is highlighting here, the second sign highlights faith. Faith. Not just in what Jesus could do, but faith in who Jesus is. This is a faith in the second sign. This is believing without seeing. As Jesus will call out, as a great blessing. Blessed are those who believe and have not seen. And the Basilicos had not seen. He just heard and trusted Jesus and believed in him. And as we close our Bibles tonight, listen. Jews are asking questions, Nicodemus. Samaritans and Gentile officials are already coming to faith. The times of the Gentiles, as I said before, were close at hand. For us, they're almost done. Beseech the Lord of the harvest to send us and other workers into the harvest. There's someone in your life, someone in your life right now tonight you, you can pray for. And I'm gonna invite you to do that. Let's bow together. Father, this idea of harvest, it's, it's just not a parabolic picture. This is our calling. And we hear you, Lord Jesus. This is what you asked us to do, to speak the gospel, to share your word, to let lost and hurting and dying and messed up and thirsty people like the woman, like the nobleman, to let them know the truth, to share the truth like the Samaritans of Sukkar. My Lord, Oak Harbor could be Sukkar. Anacortes, Sukkar. We don't need to do the fantastic. We need to speak the word of truth. We need to live out our faith. And I pray, Father, for the conviction to truly be a people, as we said a few minutes ago, who worship in our lives in spirit and in truth, in deep, compassionate, loving honesty with those who are around us, that there is a Savior of the world. And his name is Jesus. So Jesus, right now, we're going to all in our hearts speak the names of some people who don't yet know you, who don't yet believe. People we know, people maybe we've tried to talk to but haven't had success with from our vantage point. Father, I pray that you will hear these names and hear our prayers. Go ahead, brothers and sisters, take just a second and 
pray the name of someone or names of someone that you hope will receive the gospel. Father, hear our hearts. Truly in, in keeping with kind of the theme of tonight from the well of our hearts, we pull up these names. We offer them to you and we say, Lord Jesus, save. Save these people. Save these friends of ours. Save these family members. And Lord, make us bold, convicted, passionate, preoccupied with Jesus people who will bring this truth with love and tenderness, but will deal in truth with these people we have just named before you. Lord, we want to be workers in the harvest. So give us opportunity, open doors, open windows, open conversations, and Holy Spirit come upon us to speak exactly what needs to be spoken at the right time. We bring this to you and we ask for you to oversee this and Holy Spirit to work through us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.